0: My primary goal today on the show is to equip you to make it through and even thrive in this very trying time in American history. But first, you might have seen this story that says only six percent of COVID deaths are really from COVID. We'll start there on this week's Corey Truax show. This is the best. one corner of the internet the headlines were uh, were of the i told you so persuasion as there was a report compiled using cdc statistics that said only six percent of people who died from covid really died of covid19 i want to clarify what that means and then offer some more covid19 thoughts before we move on to lots more on this week's True Act show so thank you for being with us on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9 and thank you for listening to the podcast wherever it is you find it If you don't know me already, my name is Corey Truax. Amongst many other things, I get the honor of serving as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday morning in Greenville, South Carolina, and you are invited. Hey, I I have a detail on that. Coming up on Sunday, the day I can't think of, I think it's the 13th, yeah, 13th and 20th, I will be continuing my Gospel of Mark series. So you're welcome out if you don't have a church home. We start at 1030, and you can hear that next installment of what's going on in Mark Gospel of Mark, and we're actually about to be in the fulcrum of that book, so it's a good time to stop on by. You can also find our series in Revelation on YouTube. Just look for Beachwood Church. You'll find us there. Uh, Doug, our, our, our lead pastor, just really doing a great job with that series. Let's start here. The, the headline I was just telling you about, I saw on Twitter and Facebook, some folks' Instagram stories that were now finding the truth that of all these 180,000 some odd deaths in the United States attributed to COVID-19, it is only 6% that are COVID-19 deaths. And so the logic works thusly. If it's only 6%, that means COVID-19 has only killed 9,000 and some odd people. Therefore, the entire thing is either a pandemic or a hoax, and we overreacted and should move on. Now, There are some kernels of truth in that reaction, but as I like to do with every side, I want us to always be cautious about not allowing headlines and news to verify our preconceived notions and preconceived biases. There are many of you and lots of people that are given to the the persuasion that we deeply overreacted to COVID-19. I am leaning more and more that uh, that way as as time goes by and we gather more information. But just because we hear something that makes us think, oh, look, I'm right, that thing I thought, I'm obviously right, we still need to be thoroughly skeptical and thoroughly thoughtful of all the things that we take in and then share. It's one thing to believe a story and maybe not have done the background intellectual work to Have earned your right to believe it. I shouldn't say earned your right, but earned your believing it. You've not done. Sometimes you don't fact check, so you've not earned this belief. You just decided to take it. And so uh, I want to clarify what this thing means, and not let our biases confirm. Oh yeah, that's what I was going to finish that thought. So it's one thing to believe it; it's another to share it, and that's some irresponsible stuff. Sharing stuff that we have not verified. And let me encourage you, whoever you are, don't do that. Until you're sure about something, don't share it. Don't, let's, let's not help the internet be a dumber place than it already is. So here's what that study actually showed. That it is true that of all the COVID deaths we've had of the 180 some odd thousand, that 94% of them also included some other cause of death. There's a another attributing or contributing factor to the fact that that person died. That person had a Already had some kind of respiratory disease or disorder, had asthma, or maybe had a, a previously existing heart condition. Maybe they were particularly old and already had some kind of congestive heart issue. I think, or congen. I can't think of the word that has to do with uh, the the heart condition I'm thinking of, but had some kind of heart issue or respiratory issue. Maybe it, for some, it is obesity. We are finding that obesity is a core morbidity comorbidity when it comes to COVID-19. There's all kinds of other contributing factors, and so then the argument goes, well, 94% of people who died and and had COVID-19 didn't die of COVID-19. They died with COVID-19, but there was a lot of other stuff that was going to kill them anyway, and therefore, it's not dangerous and we all need to get back to normal. So here's what I want to make really clear, and then I'll, I'll tell you a bunch of things that can be true at the same time. With those definitions of comorbidity, the respiratory issues, being of a particular age, heart issues, obesity, when you add them all up, the CDC also says it's about 150 million Americans have a comorbidity. Almost half of us aren't healthy enough to... uh, uh, I'm going to pull back. Over half the country isn't healthy, doesn't live a healthy lifestyle, has has some other things besides COVID to worry about. And so it's true that only 6% of the cases did we go from healthy person to getting COVID-19 to death. That is true. It's less than 10,000 people that happened to. The reality is there are actually people around us, guys, though, that do have problems. They actually do have health issues. They are getting older. Their immune systems are compromised. Their respiratory system isn't as strong as it used to be, and they might not be able to handle it. And so, we might have overreacted, but let's not pretend it's not dangerous. Because if a, if someone does get COVID-19 and has these co- comorbidities, there is so, some some chance it's less than one percent that they will that they'll die. So let's let's not pretend, or let's uh, let's not give people the impression. That if they uh, that we don't we are not care to be cautious about them right now, uh, because we we don't really care uh, about their their co- comorbidity issue. Uh, as I've as i said previously, once we have a vaccine available to us, it's more and more of someone else someone else's responsibility to protect themselves, and it is for us to protect them. But there's still some kind of balance to have there. So that's to clarify. It it still matters. 94% of the people who died with COVID-19 had some comorbidity, but 150 million Americans have comorbidities. So let's be really careful about this thing. Now, all of these other things can be true at the same time. One, the pandemic is real. This isn't fake. There there isn't a, a conspiracy here in that to con, to have a conspiracy, you you have to be able to control information and this is over hundred, hundreds of countries. All, millions of medical professionals, millions of lab technicians, and they're all working within a system. Uh, they're, they're not all part of a conspiracy. So it's, it's real. We actually have a, a global pandemic. A new virus came along that we weren't, we weren't quite ready for, and it has caused havoc in a lot of ways across the world. But then number two, this can be true. Some of you will disagree. We overreacted. We sh- shut down economies. We ruined lives. Out of fear and caution, we overreacted to the severity of COVID-19. I've, I have finally landed there. And that's been a long road for me because at the beginning, like in March, you might remember on the show, my, my, my thought was we, we don't know enough. I remember that being a big theme during that time in my life. No one knows anything. We don't actually, we don't actually have any data. So hypersensitivity and cautiousness has some wisdom to it because nobody knows anything. And then as time goes by, you might have heard me in my attitude being, well, I just can't blame anybody because this is hard. There was no pandemic practice. So I don't want to hate on Andrew Cuomo for his ridiculously high death rate. And I don't want to hate on President Trump or Ron DeSantis down in down in Florida how they handled it, because no one had any idea. Like this is new. And no one knew how to handle these things. No one ran for office thinking, you know, I'm the right person for pandemic management. That that wasn't on anyone's platform and so I wanted to be patient and as more and more time goes by I have landed on the reality that we did overreact to COVID-19 and I don't think anyone had a, a a deleterious intent it was just scare people being scared there was fear but the evidence is starting to mount for me about severity in this way what's going on in California with John MacArthur's church has been formative to me. Now, real quick, I am not uh, an anecdotal argument guy. I believe in data. I believe in broad... I don't just believe in it. That That's what smart people should do. We don't believe stories mean big things. We, we believe mass data means things. I, I, I also recognize that correlation isn't causation. Just because two things are happening at the same time doesn't mean that there's a relationship between the two. They could be totally parallel to each other but never intersect. So this is going to sound like I'm violating some of that argumentation for a minute but hopefully I've built enough credibility with you guys over the years that you know I'm not using any kind of logical fallacy to get there. So, John MacArthur's big church out in California. California now leading the country in COVID-19 active COVID-19 cases in the most cases overall. In the midst of that time when COVID-19 was really flaring up in California, John MacArthur's mega church opens thousands of members. And you can see from the video, ninety-five percent of them not wearing masks, not spread out. They're seated close to each other. They're singing, which is supposed to be one of those things that spreads the thing, spreads COVID. We're a month into this, guys, and they don't have a single case. That's one church, but then I actually I still think back to us here in South Carolina that yeah we had an uptick and it was it was hard. It was not nearly what happened with New York and New Jersey and Italy early on. But we ended up having an uptick. But I I think about us. We were walking around without much restriction on into March. And we didn't suffer much of a consequence to it. When we finally did have an uptick, it was after the shutdowns. I think about my own church, where we started getting back together months ago. I mean, I, I believe it was... May, maybe first Sunday in May, second Sunday in May, we started meeting again, and there, there was some, we're still taking some cautious steps about specific things like communion and how offerings are given, but at large, and we even took, I mean, I think some guidance regarding seating at the beginning and getting some space, but we're now months in to Beachwood meeting again, and we sing, we sit close to each other, we are almost almost 100 percent non-masked, And except for the one case that I had, we, we don't have we don't have any cases. And you start, you start to see more evidence of there just being the way, the way that this seems to be happening is that you can shut down for a time, but it doesn't prevent cases and infections. It just delays them. Because it's a pandemic, and it's going to run through people groups. You can try to manage it, but you can't stop it. And so, as as North Dakota and South Dakota started reopening, and and then in the Northeast as they started to reopen, it just it, it seems to be the way this thing works. The best I can tell is it enters into a an area, it spreads, it gets who it's going to get, it affects negatively who it's going to affect and you can shut down so that no one ever gets it but then you have all kinds of other problems that you cause and then when you reopen because the the pressure that you've placed on yourself by shutting down uh, you reopen and those same people get it they just got it later than they otherwise would have so we did overreact so it's true the pandemic is real people die from it but yeah we probably over we didn't probably we overreacted to it and i understand why there's a lot of fear attached to it This also does not diminish that the deaths related to COVID-19 are not tragic. They are tragic. That's something I want to stop on really quickly. So the pandemic is real. We did overreact to it. But that doesn't mean the deaths don't matter. The deaths do matter. But we also have to recognize in a pandemic, death is inevitable. There are some number of people that are going to die with no one able to stop it. You can minimize some death, probably. Probably. But that's the nature of a pandemic. People get the get the virus and some people who are vulnerable will die from it. So one of the uh, big annoyances I had in how people talked about COVID-19 casualties or deaths, one very smart person that I follow on Facebook who's got a little he's he's fallen into a uh, a derangement syndrome of just how much he hates the president has made him who was otherwise kind of libertarian kind of go off the left left end. Um, but he was making the argument that we've we've lost you know, this many uh, this many 9-11s. You know, 180,000 people was this many 9/11, 9-11s. And people are, still aren't taking COVID-19 seriously. And or I even see people saying, we've lost more people than we did in the Vietnam War. To which I want to say to those otherwise smart people, uh, yeah. Wait, do you think it would have been different? An event that happened on... With 9-11, it happened on one day and in one city. You don't think that a pandemic that affects 330 million Americans wouldn't kill more people? Well, duh. Of course it would. We sent over to Vietnam. I think we had 40,000-something casualties in Vietnam. You think one war in a small country with less than 1% of the American population over there involved in that war? I mean, but, and, and then also having it over a period of years... That would have m- more deaths. Like its actual point is to kill each other. That's a war. Well, of course it, it would have. Of course it would have deaths, but of course this would have more because this doesn't include just one percent of the population in an isolated place. These these are very dumb arguments about the severity of the death. It it matters. It matters a ton. But we got to keep it in context. And then the final thing, of course, it's being used politically. Of course, it is true that there are political interests that want to make COVID-19 seem worse than it is. It still is bad, and the deaths still matter, but there are, of course, politically interested people, mostly on the left and in, uh, in the media, that want COVID to be horrific so that they can get an election outcome that they desire. So all those things can be true at the same time. The pandemic is real. It's actually quite sad. The deaths that come from it are tragic. We did overreact in how we tried to mitigate the, the effect of it, and it is being used politically. Those are all true at the same time, so that we don't have to look at stories that say only 6% of the deaths were uh, were derived direct only from COVID, and then try to use that as a cudgel against other people who don't think what we think, because it is not an art, honest argument. When we come back... I have actually an illustration I want to give you from Lord of the Rings that I learned. I'll give you a preview of my Mark series coming up. And then I want to, again, equip you to make it through this very hard time. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of The Corey Truag Show. (music) Do you know that infectious enthusiasm, you might think of it as an annoying enthusiasm that a kid has when he or she learns something new and they need to show you? So a kid learns how to tie his or her shoe, and they've got to show you. They learn how to whistle and or snap their fingers, and they just have to keep showing you because they learned a new thing, and they got to share that with the world. That is a quality that never actually left me. Now I'm 34, and anytime I learn anything new, I think, I have to tell someone right now. I've got to to tell some people the thing that I learned. And then fortunate for me, the Lord is good, I have a microphone and some podcasting software, so I get to tell you now some things I learned, and it makes me happy. I also think this is the fun parts of radio and conversation, is when we get to teach each other things. So here's some new stuff I learned. I should first say, this is The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, 91.9 and 92.9, and you can also find me, Corey Truax, wherever you find social media content. You can find Corey Truax on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and I hope that you will. Here we go. I was listening to, doesn't matter what, uh, but I was. They were talking about the Lord of the Rings, and I love Lord of the Rings. I love some Tolkien. So give me all of uh, the Two Towers, Return of the King, uh, all the way over to the Hobbit uh, and that series. I, I do love these movies, and I love the books. Uh, not as much as like some people who read the Cimmerillion, That's 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 a two. That's one step too far for me. Those of you that are such a big Lord of the Rings fan that you'll read all that history, I admire you but I can't I cannot go that far with you. If you don't know what the Cimmerillion is, you should Google it. Wow, that's a lot of information about the whole universe that Tolkien created. Now, in The Lord of the Rings, there is the main antagonist. Any great story, the great stories have awesome antagonists. You need a good bad guy. And it's a guy named Sauron or a monster named Sar- Sauron. I don't I don't know what you want to call him. He is illustrated early in the movies and the books as an unbelievably powerful evil being, large and and, and imposing, very powerful. And Sauron makes this ring. He has this ring that uh, he he imbues it with his power. And as long as he has this ring, he is powerful. He can defeat all of his enemies. If he loses the ring, then he is one isolated can't can't really go the more go to more than one place he is disembodied he loses his his power he can still make some things happen but he's not by any stretch overwhelmingly powerful if he doesn't have that ring and so when he loses the ring he crumbles into nothing and ends up basically just being an eye and so he put the power into the ring and he loses it he loses everything JRR Tolkien in some correspondence with uh, writing letters to some other folks at the time, he said that on purpose, he drew up the Sauron character as an illustration for, as an analogy or metaphor for human idolatry. That humans are our, our primary chief sin, the core sin at the, at the center of all sins is idolatry taking something good or bad, for that matter, and putting it in the place of God, giving it the power or place or role that only Yahweh God should have in our lives. And so you, you take this analogy, and it is quite brilliant. So Sauron places all of his being into a ring, and if he loses the ring, he loses his, his being. We do that. We put all of our being into someone else's opinion of us. And if that person doesn't think what we need them to think about us, we've lost our ring and we'll fall apart. We put all of our being, all of our power in the job we have or the status we have, the title we have. And then we lose the job or lose the status. We lose the admiration of others and then we have fallen apart. We crumple underneath The pressure and the pain of not having the thing that we gave all of our being and we gave all of our power. For some of us, that's a mate, it's a person, might be a child in your life. We put all of our being into something, we give it all of our power to, to make us who we are, and then when we lose it, we fall apart. And this is such a great illustration. Sauron, this evil character of Lord of the Rings, is this great illustration for us to pay attention to. Uh, that I think the quote is from actually C.S. Lewis now switching from G.R. or Tolkien uh, never never put your happiness in something you may lose because if it is a person a job a title an amount of money a home uh, an experience someone else's approval if it is in those things you will lose them and then you will fall apart and that's the illustration of Sauron and just fun stuff I learned that that Tolkien wrote it that way on purpose and so I wanted to share that with you next thing I learned Coming up here soon at Beachwood Church, and then I will also put this on the podcast feed. I will be preaching from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. And there's this weird story in there where right before Jesus has a, a, a very important moment. It's actually the fulcrum of the story. The fulcrum of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus asking the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter declares, You are the Christ. And then the next thing is the transfiguration, where Jesus reveals himself in some real glory to the disciples, with Elijah and Moses coming down on the uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so that, those those two stories are the centerpiece of the Gospel of Mark. But leading up to that conversation, leading up to Jesus asking the disciples, Who do you say that I am? There's this weird little story where some people bring Jesus a blind man and he takes the blind man outside of the village, to get some space to be alone with him, but the disciples are there. And Jesus heals the man, says to be healed. And Jesus asks, "Do do you see? Can you see now?" And the man responds, "I can see men, and they look like trees walking." Which is just a creative way of saying it's blurry. You know, I I can see something, and I guess those are supposed to be people, but it just looks like trees walking around, and so it's not a perfect healing. And then Jesus spits on his hands, touches his eyes, and he's healed totally. And it's a weird story because Jesus' healings are often, not actually every other time in the scriptures, are total. They're full. When Jesus says, be healed, you are healed. When Jesus says, rise from the dead, you rise from the dead. So why was this one healing an exception where Jesus had to give it a second try, as it were. And I learned from the commentaries and the scholars that it was supposed to be an illustration for what was about to happen, that the disciples had been seeing Jesus like a tree walking around. They had not been seeing him clearly for who he was. They would ask the question when he calms the sea, who is this that the wind and the trees obey him? they don't understand his parables they don't understand what it means that he's walking on water doing that which only god can do they don't understand that he when he says he's for, he we he's forgiving sins what that means cosmically about his place and jesus after feeding of the 4000 not the 5000 but the 4000 actually seems a little exasperated and when he asks the questions do you not yet see do you not yet believe are you basically are you still seeing me blurry In a minute after that, you know, that next story, there is clarity about who Jesus is. And it's an illustration that Jesus is healing their vision of him because they've not been seeing him clearly. And that's another good lesson for us. Sometimes we see Jesus quite blurry. We see him through our American eyes. We see him through our southern eyes. We see him through our theological system, our dispensationalism or our covenant theologies or our denomination and we have seen a Jesus and more often than not we make him in our own image and it's a little bit blurry about who the real one is and we can and should reach out in the gospels and in prayer and and seeking the image of Jesus that's actually on the pages of scripture to see who the real one is because too often our vision is blurry now final spiritual thought for the day There's a meme going around. A couple of you have forwarded it to me, plus I've just seen it shared by others. These are some people certainly seeing Jesus blurry. They do not have a clear vision of him. I have talked about it on the show previously, so I will try to keep this to less than three or four minutes, but I want to respond to it since it's going back around. There's a series of memes. They're all the same thing. It's some painting of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, or some cartoon someone has drawn of Jesus using a whip in the temple, and he's driving the money changers out of the temple there in Jerusalem. And the captions all read to this end. Here's the point the captions are trying to make. Don't let anyone tell you that destruction of property isn't a legitimate way to protest. So the argument they're making is that Jesus was protesting, and the way that he did it is he overturned tables in the overturned tables in the temple. That's really hard to say with all those T's in there. He overturned the tables in the temple, and this should be equated to because Jesus goes in and tears up property in that process. So if you are in Portland burning down someone's life savings of a business, if you are in Kenosha, breaking windows and uh, breaking out storefront windows and burning stuff down. Well, you're just like Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you that tearing, tearing up property is not a legitimate form of protest because Jesus did it. So I, I think some people share that, share that meme out of ignorance. They don't know better. They don't know enough scripture. And they don't care enough to know. They don't care enough to actually do the work. Some people share it dishonestly. They do know better. But their politics is ahead of their theology. They care more about their political outcome than they do having fealty and verity to the truth. So, to be clear, uh, do you know who the temple belongs to? This This is actually what Jesus is trying to make the point. Not just trying, he made it very effectively. Who does the temple belong to? Does it belong to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Does it belong to the uh, the, sh- the sh- power structures of the time? Now that's what Jesus actually says. I'm gonna, I'll put some flair on it here. It's a, how dare you turn my father's house into a center for commerce, or turn it into this den of uh, of commerce? You could even say some some of the co- uh, connotation there might be thievery. The actual concept here of that episode is Jesus is saying, this is my father's house and I am his son. This doesn't belong to you. You are the vandals here. You are the ones making a mockery of what this temple was for, where Yahweh would dwell with men. You're the ones making a mockery of it. This actually belongs to my father and to me. And then through Jesus's work, if it were still standing, I guess, the, the, the people of God, because that's the, that's the ownership. What's happening with actual protesters and rioters around the country, is they are tearing stuff up that doesn't belong to them. And to use Jesus as an example is not just, uh, as an argument in this case, it's not just offensive, it's sacrilegious. It is an act of sacrilege to take the God of the universe who died for your sin, if you will repent, confess, and follow after him, to use him to make your political point about the evil actions of someone else Let me be really clear. Unless you confess and repent, the judgment coming for you will be harsh. That you have used the image of God on this earth. Emmanuel, God with us, who put on flesh to dwell among us, to use him and his actions to justify sin. God have mercy on you and God have mercy on your soul to have made that kind of, it might be ignorant, and it might be an immature argument, it could be those things, but for a lot of you, it's a dishonest argument, and may God have mercy on you for it. I'm going to go ahead and take a break, because I'm getting a little heated, and when I, so it's a little early. When we come back, I want to spend the rest of the time exploring this reality that we're in a part of human history, that is weighing on people, and I think it's driving some people crazy. I mean that it's, it's exasperating previously held or, pre- or previously experienced mental health issues. It's making it making us all a little worse. And I want to try to talk through the, the examples of that and maybe how to get through it with better emotional mental health. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show. depending on when you're listening to this, we are 50-something days to Election Day 2020, and one of the things I would love to do leading up to it is be part of the group of people who bring the temperature down, that aren't panicking. Uh, At the end of this uh, last sermon in the Book of Revelation series that we're doing at Beachwood Church, that was one of the application points, is that Jesus is reigning now. And so, Outcomes of of world of world elections and countries they matter and I don't wouldn't pretend for a minute they don't they matter outcomes matter but they're not life and death and so we don't find hope in them so I want to illustrate to you now that what I think is happening is that this moment the COVID nineteen lead up so that that causing one pressure that then leads to economic pressure for people and then you include what's happened with racial strife and tension, and then you all of that happens in a scenario where we're in a faithless world, a world that has a lot of pagan religion, but not much of, a, of the real one. So folks are looking for meaning, they're looking for a way to atone for themselves, to find a reason for them to exist, and Basically, leftist wokeism comes along as like a religious option for them. I think all of that stews together and causes some issues. Let me give you the examples. For example, we saw two weeks ago, if you didn't see, there was an African-American man who went into an auto zone and repeatedly stabbed some random white employee there. And when apprehended by the police, he said... He got up today and just knew he he had to find a white person to kill. And he's mentally he's mentally ill. There's some meds he was supposed to be on that he was not on. But consider the moment we're in. There's already mental illness, a lot of pressure, and then the thing he sees all around him in social media and in and on on media is white people are trying to kill you and if white people aren't trying to do it, white police are and uh, no one cares about your life. That's going to do something to somebody. There is There was another similar story that, the, that that person who got stabbed didn't die, but there was a similar story of another mentally challenged man or emotionally de- demented, maybe? Emotionally demented man who did some violence against another white person because, again, that's going to happen. It's one of the consequences of stewing in a media environment that it's that toxic around the issues of race. I'll give you two from another one, two examples. Uh, I saw a video from uh, whatever city, whatever city the um, Democrat National Convention was supposed to be in, I guess that was Milwaukee maybe. And there's a Trump supporting mom. She looks to be in her probably late 30s, early 40s. And she's got all the MAGA stuff and the the Trump flags up. And she's out at a Democrat event trying to make a point. And some psychotic woman, admittedly, some psychotic Democratic woman steals the Make America Great Great Again hat off of this woman's son. So this woman is there with her 9- or 10-year-old son. And some psychotic woman steals the hat off this kid's head and is going to walk away with it. And so... The, so this bully, this psychotic bully, is tr- trying to pick on this kid. The mom intervenes. But one of the things the mom says to her kid, I can't remember the kid's name, but she said his name and said, go get your hat back. Go, go. And she's got the camera on. She's, she's hit a, a, a place emotionally and mentally that's not right. You know, so now you're exposing your kid to a world that he doesn't really understand at all. You are exposing him to people who have shown themselves to be willing to be violent. That's what the, leftish has sh- the left has shown us the last several months. And then when someone actually does, you can't call it an act of violence, but does actually an act of at least vandalism of some sort against you, you actually tell your 9 or 10-year-old kid to go do it so that you can get the camera shot of it. Well, yeah, that's a broken brain. That's a broken emotional state, and this moment has done that to a lot of people. There is... A story, on the, a story on the other side of that. So, uh, I'm about to say something. Yeah, I'm, I, you know what? I'm going to say it. Let's just do it. There's this uh, story out of Colorado, Boulder area, which is a very liberal area, where there's this kid, uh, 9 or 10 years old, excuse me, 12 years old, riding down the street on his bike. He had a Trump sign on his bike, like a, like a banner, some kind of banner and a woman in her late 20s early 30s riding a moped sees the kid passes by him makes a u turn turns around gets off her bike and beats him she doesn't do a bunch of it she's not that strong or big of a woman but tries to beat this 12 year old boy over his trump stuff now obviously i'm not a trump guy i i wish this 12 year old wasn't riding around with it this 12 year old doesn't know enough to be riding around with those types of things. I think it's a bad idea for anybody to be riding around with Trump stuff on. But nevertheless, this psychotic, I'm going to go as far as demonic woman decides she's going to beat up a kid because he has some political speech that she objects to. The thing I was about to say, uh, and I tried to stop myself, but I'm coming back to it, is that this actually is the demographic I am noticing who is getting most bothered. It's white women in their late 20s to early 30s. And I think it is again the lack of religion in the country that this is a group that really does want to find meaning, and they have decided that politics and some kind of like racial justice thing that's where they're going to find meaning. Where I think men have some other outlets, they'll choose sports to find meaning. Maybe they'll get uh, more likely to go out in the woods, do some hunting or something to find some meaning. Uh, But. Women, especially, I'm, I'm noticing, late 20s to early 30s, they are the ones driving this. A lot of the protesting happening in New York and Portland, a lot of those places, Milwaukee, uh, Kenosha, you'll, you'll see a ton of white people doing it, late 20s to early 30s, and there's a lot of women, a lot of white women. And so what, what does it take for someone to get to a place where you would turn your moped around and go beat a 12-year-old child because of some political speech? that you don't agree with. Well, it might be the same place it takes for Jamel Hill, who used to be with ESPN. She was a commentator there, and now she's a political commentator for The Atlantic and on Twitter, to say she read this ridiculous book that I might need to review uh, called Cast, where she says, if you don't think America's as bad as the Nazis, your eyes aren't, your eyes aren't open. So, America, the United States of America, the greatest national force for good in the history of humanity, this is not debatable. It's as bad as the country who started World War II, waged a war of conquest, murdered 6 million Jews, had a lot of its own people killed as that Nazi regime took over, and then was responsible for untold amounts of deaths as it pushed west towards Russia and east towards Europe. What kind of brain does it take to get that this country is as bad as that one? Well, it's it's the moment we're in this instability there's some there is some mental and emotional anguish taking place that's making people crazy. I'll give you some audio here from uh, I think a guest on MSNBC uh, trying to justify how people are behaving in this time. you can even include I- I'm including as part of this psychosis, the amount of rioting and burning and damage to property and the violence and that we're seeing in the streets—we're in a moment of disintegration—and there, I got a guy on MSNBC trying to justify it when we hear the language of law and order, we need to understand its origin. It has everything to do with shifting the blame and focus uh, from the violence of police to how black people respond to the violence that they experience. So when we think about all of the urban unrest in in the 20th century, 90% of that urban unrest, uh, Chris, has been a result, has been a response to police violence. 90% and so what- It's such a demeaning point of view trying to give this excuse it demeans minorities it demeans protesters and rioters his argument here being well yeah people are doing these things but when you use law and order you need to recognize that you're using racist language which of course we're not law and order has definitions we are a people of the rule of law we must have order on which to build a society and a civilization all of the societies and civilizations that have come about come about when there's order established and you must have rule of law and the enforcement of law. But but it's so demeaning to say it's uh, it's how people are reacting to the violence visited upon them. It's demeaning in two ways. One is it takes away responsibility. So if if you see something bad happen, immoral, wrong by the police, I I'm just out of control. I gotta go burn down AutoZone. I have to ransack a Waffle House. I gotta steal from Gucci. Well, no, you don't. Because you're an adult. You've got agency. No one's making you do anything. You're responsible for how you behave. And that kind of take you here, here on MSNBC is well, they just have no control. Well, that's demeaning. Is I can't imagine something more demeaning than if I had a temper tantrum. And I haul off and do something I'm not supposed to do for someone to come along and just say, well, how could you be expected to do anything different? I'd be so insulted by that, so demeaned by that. Well, of course I should be held to an adult standard of behavior. Of course I should be held to a standard of general human decency. That's a really small hurdle to clear. But here we have him out here on the news with this insanity saying, well, you, you can't say law and order, that's a, a racist phrase into it in and of itself, and you got to let people burn and destroy and do violence because what else would you expect them to do? There's even a justification for the collective psychosis we're under as things continue to get crazy. I'll give you another. We have Kellyanne Conway, part of the Trump cult. She's been part of the Trump cult for a long time. She's quitting her job with the Trump administration. Her husband, George Conway... He is also part of a the cult. There's an anti-Trump cult. Uh, and George, Con- George Conway was part of the Lincoln Project, people who were running, running ads against the president. Most of them okay, some of them were dishonest. But George, Con- George Conway ended up with a Trump derangement syndrome, whereas I have a principled stance against the man regarding his, his character. Conway kind of went off the, the rails. And they had such a, they being Kelly and George Conway, trying to live in the same house where she works for the Trump administration and he is triggered by it. You can you can imagine that wasn't a great atmosphere for their teenage daughter who goes out on Instagram and says she wants to be adopted by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's the kind of psychosis we're in, in what you would hope for the Conways is that they could get out of the psychosis, break away from this system, and actually fix their family. I can give you another. There's, there is a level of fear in the black community that is truly out of control. You, you see someone screaming on the street about a black people being murdered in mass. You see LeBron James at a microphone saying that cops leave their house in the morning looking to hunt and kill black people. And then I want to be sensitive to someone's fears. And let me slow down and say, I mean that. I really do want to feel that with people when they feel that kind of fear. But facts don't care about your fears. I do. But the facts are there's almost four, just over 40 million black Americans, I think it is now, 40 million. And day-to-day, 39,999,909, like it's this tiny group might be killed by somebody, might, yeah. The murder rate amongst black community versus white community is not all that much different in terms of what percentage of us are murdered in one way or the other. There's, when it comes to interactions with police, it's, it's a little different depending on what statistic you're looking for and in per interaction. But there's a level of fear here that's damaging and irrational. There's one clip I saw of a woman who's screaming, just apoplectic, this, this African-American woman, and saying, you know, you, you tell us we should call the police, but the police murder us. Well, yes. From time to time, actually quite rare, a a white cop shoots a black person, and it should be called murder, or even if not shooting, in some way precipitates the death of. But if you're saying that after something like a Jacob Blake, who now now we actually do know, he he was going, to, he was at the home of a previous love interest, that he. Oh, how do you say this on the radio? Um, Oh, I got to be careful. Um, He committed a sexual assault that was, uh, I'm going to end it there. He committed a sexual assault, something akin to rape, that's not technically by the book rape with with this woman. Her child was in the room when he did it. She called the police. Look at that racist. This racist woman must have called the police. She was a black woman, by the way because she was just sexually violated by this man, sexually assaulted by this man, who fought off police, fought off the taser, a, a guy who had, who had previously been convicted of sexual assault. And we and so, yeah, something bad happened to him. There are some innocent, obviously some innocent situations. I've argued for those all the time. But they are isolated. They're not a huge group. It's not huge statistically. And so that kind of overwhelming fear... It's damaging because it will keep black people from calling the police when they need to call the police. And we've got to bring down that temperature because it's going to be better for all of us. We've gone crazy in that we're lionizing people like Jacob Blake. He's getting calls from Joe Biden. This is a multiple time, he is a serial sexual abuser. Now, how's that supposed to make his victim feel? This man has violated a woman multiple times. And he's lionized and celebrated on, the, on every TV she watches, the internet, the internet flows that she sees on, on social media, getting a call from a Democratic presidential nominee. How's she supposed to feel? For that matter, go back to George Floyd. George Floyd's death was wrong, and there should be punishment of some kind of negligence, is what that officer should be charged with, because he probably, he probably was, uh, one of the, he was one of the factors in why George Floyd died. George Floyd was convicted previously in his life of going into a pregnant woman's house holding a gun up against her belly and robbing her. Imagine that woman. How terrifying that was. And she sees murals of her victimizer. He's being celebrated and lionized. It's in these moments that we've gone crazy. And I was going to play you one more. I was going to play you one from Oprah. She said a crazy thing, but we've run out of time for that. Actually, you know what? Let's just do it. Here, uh, Here's Oprah and something she said. White people, there are white people who are not as powerful as the system of white people, the caste oh. system that's been put in place, but they still, no matter where they are on the rung or the ladder of success, they still have their whiteness. So the argument she's making there is, so you're impoverished trailer park-dwelling white person in West Virginia with you know, making less than $20,000 a year on government assistance, probably living in some kind of government housing, like that kind of person, they are they still have white advantage because of the, the class that they're in. This goes back to a big theme on the show. We talk about not putting people in categories needing to judge and judge people as individuals. So all of that stews together and you wonder about a solution, and I've run out of time. The solution is ultimately the gospel. Let's get the gospel to people. The f- fixing the truth in people's minds will then cascade the effect on how they're thinking about the world around them. But one of the things we can do is in conversation, we can listen, we can ask insightful questions, but find the information and the tone to try to bring some peace to folks. Let that be our goal, not to win. Let that not be our goal to get a win over someone else or a point over someone else. Let our goal be bring peace for others in this world that just has none. Podcast listeners, stick around. I'm going to do some bonus today because I have a lot more stuff I wanted to say that we didn't get to, some other topics. Uh, radio show listeners, we'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love. Hi there, podcasters. This won't be long, but I do have some stuff in my notes that I don't want to carry over to the next week, so let's, we might as well do it. I got a message from somebody. Essentially, asking me this, uh, as I continue to say out loud that I won't be voting for the president in November, people are you know weird about it, um, especially on the on the right, Christian right in particular, uh, and, and for sometimes good reason. I totally get it. I mean the the abortion issue comes up every time when that this is discussed, and I actually do get it. Uh, I mean what I say when I think the abortion issue is that third. Great national sin, right there with slavery and how we dealt with Native Americans. This one has to do directly with murder, child murder. That's what it is. And so I am sensitive to that. And the question just becomes, do you have to vote for the lesser of two evils? Don't you have to do that? And so I want to do two things. I, one, want to say a lot of people that I love, value, cherish, respect, they hold that position. Pragmatically, practically, uh, utilitarianly, maybe, even, would say yes, you vote for the lesser of two evils. You're never going to ha- not do that, so you pick whatever uh, politician is more likely to do good things and less likely to do bad things, and you, you just vote that way. I can definitely see myself as a utilitarian in that way. I can be pragmatic on a vote, there is just a, I, I, but as much as I respect those folks, and I do, I mean it. Deeply respect those that are going to the polls in November to vote for Donald Trump, and they don't feel good about it. They don't like it. They wish it was a different option, but they look at the two major political parties, and they they, they feel like their conscience tells them they have a responsibility to vote. They have to, they have to steward it something God gave them, and they're going to steward it for Donald Trump. I do respect those people and I can see where they're coming from, I would just ask the same respect. I can't do it because of, I think that's just my first question. My first question for any kind of leader is just, are they decent? Just a decent person, Uh, not a half-decent person, because Donald Trump isn't even that. He's not even a half-decent person. He's a, a true lout. And so he doesn't meet that standard. And therefore, if you're telling me that's the one of the major party's options, I go, okay, no, I just can't do it. So the, the next set of arguments that are, but if he does win, here's some good things that you actually will want will happen. Yeah, that doesn't matter enough to me. I do want a, a tax cut or tax, tax cuts made permanent. I do want uh, a, a, I actually want a smaller military, but I do want a fierce one. Uh, I want America to be significant in the world, to be a significant force in diplomacy, but also... Military might. Uh, I want to see everyone's retirement accounts get healthier. I want all of that. I want uh, I want an economic environment that leads to more innovation, not less. I want to see the world get better because of the innovation that we have in, in medicines and technologies, computers, space travel, all that stuff. And all of that will be byproducts of more right-leaning ideas being in place. But he doesn't pass the first thing just being decent so it's not enough for me but does that is that doesn't also mean obviously i could ever vote for a joe biden so you, you look at joe biden he and he probably does pass the decency test he's a decent man but then you start ro- rolling down the po- policy and these are i'm going to call them sometimes evil sometimes just disagreements but some evil policies and some policies that I just go, no, that, that's bad for people. I don't want anything to do with that. And so I am more than willing to just not participate or vote third party when it comes to president. So when I'm being asked, uh, why not just vote for the lesser of two evils and those questions? Because I got that this week. Those that do vote for the lesser of two evils, I respect. I, I do wonder about a limit. You know, one of my favorite broadcasters, um, Todd Friel, he actually, he's actually on uh, his radio talk, 91.9. He's distributed there. He makes this argument really stridently, stringently. He's openly okay with voting for the lesser of two evils. um, And it's basically only about abortion. So whoever is more likely to lead to fewer abortions, I'm just voting for that, period, bottom line. I do ask and wonder, what is the limit? Is there any limit to that? He likes to give the illustration, if Christians at the time of the Roman Empire had a chance to vote between Nero and Caligula, well, they should all at least vote for Caligula because Caligula was going to kill fewer of them and Nero was killing the Christians. Now, Caligula was also a horrific person who committed a lot of violence, just wasn't as much towards the Christians. And so I would have said at the time, no, I'm not. I'm not voting for either of these people. Uh, just not, I'm not going to do it and pray even so. Lord, come quickly. Uh, I, I, so I actually do want to know if there is a limiting principle. If you were out there and you're one of those voters, like you're vote for the lesser of two evils and you're voting for Donald Trump, I would love to know where does that end? Is there a politician that's evil enough, personally bad enough, that you would go, well, I'm not voting for that guy, even if he is going to be, he is going to be, quote, pro-life in his policies. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested if anyone has a uh, thought on that. And then I got a message from somebody that tried to make the argument that Joe Biden was a good Catholic. And so I just wanted to quickly respond to that. Uh, no, he's not. The Catholic teaching on, a, we'll go to abortion, just for example. He, he doesn't follow it. Uh, there's the Jesuit Catholics are, are different on this, but authoritative Catholic teaching on charity, on personal generosity. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't follow Catholic teachings in that way. Um, in particular, of the of the four candidates in 2012, so when it was Romney-Ryan versus ba- uh, Obama-Biden, and all four of them released their tax returns, we found that Joe Biden, f- for decades, has been giving less than 2% away of his money. He's not a charitable person. He seems to have been a decent dad and husband. There's some good things to say, but I'm not going to abide an argument here that Joe Biden is some kind of good Christian man. He's not. I would even argue just, I mean, he's been in public life since he was thirty years old, So from thirty until I think he's now seventy eight. He's been in politics for forty eight years uh, and has and has behaved in a way a couple times. that's better it's it's below the the standard of Christian honor and how he's treated people. I mean, he he said of Mitt Romney, the most anodyne candidate of the last hundred years, the most harmless man in the last hundred years, he said to a crowd of black Americans, uh, Mitt Romney's going to put y'all back in chains. This this is not the behavior of an honorable person. So um, while he seems to be a decent a decent person, I guess, uh, not, I'm not going to abide the argument that D- Joe Biden is some kind of good Christian man. I think I will save the rest of it. Next, Probably next episode, I want to talk about the changing language that we're dealing with. The word racism doesn't mean what it used to mean. The word white supremacy doesn't mean what it used to mean. And I want to work through all of that. Uh, But we will go ahead and end the bonus stuff. Thank you for listening. When you share the show with others, it means the world to me. And I would even humbly consider asking you to support the show. Some of you do. Five bucks a month, ten bucks a month. Or just some of you that go on the Anchor app and you set up a recurring gift to the show. Uh, It's not a necessity. The Lord is taking care of me. But it would help move the show towards full-time eventually. So... Uh, if you are so inclined, I'd be greatly appreciative. And that's very uncomfortable to ask. All right, I'm out. Uh, peace and love, everybody. Until next, how do I say at the end of the show? That's it. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.